Welcome to In-House Legal, where we cover a variety of issues pertinent to the general counsel and in-house legal departments of small, mid-size, and large organizations. Join host Randy Milch each month as he discusses the latest developments, trends, and best practices for this very busy and often complicated area of law. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. My name is Randy Milch, and I'm the host of In-House Legal on the Legal Talk Network. I'm honored and happy to have as a guest today Laureen Seeger, Executive Vice President and General Counsel of American Express. Laureen was an accomplished litigator in private practice and is now on her second stint as the General Counsel of a major company. Laureen is a leader in the complex world of dealing with cybersecurity issues. Laureen, welcome to In-House Legal. Thank you, Randy. It's a pleasure to be here and to join a very long list of esteemed colleagues who've participated in your podcast. Well, we're just getting better and better with our colleagues anyway, so thank you for coming. You know, Laureen, you've had such a spectacular career. I don't mean to make it sound like it's in any way, shape, or form anything in the past tense, but you've done so many things. And you started off in Wisconsin. You know, we have to give a shout out to the Badgers, of course. What led you to the law? Why did you decide that you wanted to be a lawyer? That's a really great question. I was lucky enough when I was very young to have a great counselor in my high school who identified very early on that of all the skills and interests I had, they aligned best with art or law. And since I was not very good at art, she planted a seed that I might want to try law. And so I decided to finish high school in three years and spend what would have been my fourth year of high school I think ages 16 to 17 years old, working at a law firm in Milwaukee called Quarles and Brady. I worked as a paralegal and a secretary full-time during that year and the following summer. And frankly, seeing what they did every day and the kind of issues they dealt with, after that, there was no turning back, Randy. That's great. So you got into it very young. You went to law school. And then describe what happened after law school. Where You went into a law firm. You were in two law firms. How did you choose your first one? And how did you choose litigation? Because I think that there's sometimes, particularly when you and I went into uh, litigation, it was seen at the time as a more male endeavor than it obviously should be or could be. But what made you decide you wanted to litigate? Well, I, let me see. I started as a clerk in a law firm in Atlanta. So I was in Wisconsin in law school, and there were many law firms from the Northeast and the Midwest that were interviewing at that law school. I was also a college runner, an athlete, and competed at the national level in track and cross country. And so I knew full well and good that I needed a slightly warmer climate, Randy, in order to enjoy both my passion for running and my passion for law. So I actually drove down to Atlanta with a friend of mine from law school and walked into a number of large law firms that were in the middle of recruiting their summer clerk class. And during that course of that week, interviewed and received an offer for a summer job at a firm called Hansel & Post, which later became Jones Day's Atlanta office. During that summer, I clerked both in corporate securities and in litigation 
I was pretty competitive, so I thought litigation would definitely be one of the top two areas I'd be interested in. I enjoyed both, and when the firm offered me a permanent job, they asked me, would I prefer to be in litigation or corporate securities? And I even surprised myself, Randy, in a split second, I answered litigation. <laughs> and so I guess I guess you'd have to say that I was just wanting the competition and enjoyed the process of winning and losing and settling or whatever, whatever happens in cases. I was drawn to more of an adversarial competitive arena. So that's how it all began. That makes a lot of sense, and it makes a lot of sense consistent with your college athletic career, which uh, gets the competitive juices flowing so much. Did you find that there were any issues about being a woman in that part of the field, or was it an effortless sort of thing in the sense of there was not a gender-linked issue? Well, if you think back, let me see, this was in 1986. So this is 30 years ago, right? Roughly. So you think back, and I was in the South. I wasn't in New York City or in California, I think that at the time, there wasn't a single litigation female partner at the office in Atlanta that I practice in. And I believe that in the 14 years that I litigated after that, I probably was before a female judge twice. And so it wasn't a very embracing area of law for women at the time. At the same time, I was a novelty. So going into courthouses in Alabama, Mississippi, South Carolina, and I have one quick story about a judge where uh, I was in Macon, Georgia, and I was the respondent to a motion filed by my opponent. And when I got into the court, the judge decided that ladies would argue first. And if for any of you who litigate, who listen to this, know that the movement, the person who files the motion, always argues first. And so there were moments litigating in the South at the time with both my Midwestern accent and as a woman where I got some advantages on the other hand. There were also some challenges that I confronted. I had to fight very hard to get first chair opportunities, to actually have confidence in my ability to try a case as a lead. And I had to earn that. I think I worked extra hard and long to do that. And at the time, what mattered is whether you won. So I litigated knowing that if I lost a motion or lost a hearing, that I don't know if it was true or not, but I felt that I had to win almost everything in order to keep getting better and better cases. So I did feel a little bit of a challenge, but it wasn't because of anything other than that I think I was a novelty at the time. I know one judge, I I introduced myself to him. He was a federal judge in Atlanta, and he smiled and asked me what part of the country I was from. And in a courtroom, when you're ready to, to dive in at an oral argument, you usually aren't used to a conversation around where you're from. And so there were moments like that, but I found it pretty fascinating. I also think that juries were not used to seeing many women in the courtroom either. And so at the time, there were shows on television like L.A. Law, Randy, where there were women characters. And so people were waking up to the fact that women were in courtrooms. It was fascinating. I'm sure it was. And I'm sure you simply internalized the extra burden and 
went ahead and did your thing to win, which is absolutely the way you are. You know, you say it's interesting to be asked where you're from. You don't have to go into the deep south for that to happen. When I was <laughs> in private practice, and when I was in private practice in D.C., and would go into the wilds of Virginia, right across the river, at times I would get that question where I was from. So, but I can understand how it was a little bit more prominent in uh, the deep south. So you litigate for 14 years. You're a very successful litigator, and then you decide to go in-house. And you decide to go in-house with McKesson, where you eventually became general counsel. But tell us about why you decided to go in-house and why you chose McKesson, which involved a move, didn't it? It did eventually. It did eventually. So I, at the first, I'd say, six years of my time with McKesson, I was able to stay in Atlanta, where I had my two children and my home, which was good. But I'll say that Every lawyer in private practice will reach a point, uh, I'd say four years out, and then later when they're just about to make partner, and then later when they're a young partner, and many women when they have their first children, where companies will be calling them and asking them if they're interested in coming in-house. And what will happen to many young lawyers is what happened to me. I asked myself the question, for what kind of a job would I go in-house? And decided it had to be one that had a lot of litigation and where I could really learn something of value to take back into private practice. And when McKesson called, at the time, they had purchased a software company, overpaid, had a accounting restatement, and a huge amount of class action security cases. And so they had quite a bit of litigation over both their accounting practices historically and the technology products they produced. And so I did go in-house for a job that was both involving litigation, also backed by a large company, Fortune 25 at the time. So it was relatively secure and it would allow me to be based in Atlanta However, for that job, it wasn't really a move up. A lot of people would view it as a lateral move because it was a divisional general counsel role, Randy, and the compensation was quite a bit lower than I was used to making. And so for me, it was how would I look at a company turning around a high-tech company and help it through litigation and learn what it would be like to be a client? And my plan was to go back to private practice and put that to use as I represented high-tech companies and their litigation across the country. So it made sense. You left yourself a very good exit strategy, and you went in-house, but it seems like you were inveigled to stay. Why don't you, first of all, tell everybody what McKesson does? Because I think it's a huge company, very important, but I think a lot of people are not sure where it sits in the corporate firmament. So could you just give us a second on what McKesson does? I would be happy to do that. So the short elevator version of what they do is that they are the world's largest distributor of pharmaceutical drugs, medical surgical supplies, and technology that automates all constituents of healthcare, ranging from retail pharmacies where you pick up your drugs to physician offices where the surgical glove the doctor might use and the tongue depressor was brought to that doctor's office by McKesson, maybe even manufactured by McKesson. And when you're in a hospital and you're checked in and you're going from department to department 
and using their supplies, those supplies and the drugs may also have come from McKesson. And so it's a global company and it's not business to consumer. It's only B2B. So you would rarely see the brand of McKesson anywhere. Currently, it's the 14th largest company by revenues in the United States. It might have even gotten bigger than that since I departed, but it's really in the background of everything that is healthcare. Right, and that's why I think the B2B aspect probably leaves people without any ready way of identifying it. So you became general counsel at McKesson. You're out in San Francisco. You're the general counsel of a Fortune 15 company, and then you decide to go become general counsel of American Express. So general counsel to general counsel, what led you to leave your life out in San Francisco or in California where it's sunny all the time to come (laughs) east to New York where we are just starting to experience spring here? What was that decision like? That's a very complicated question. So I would say that being general counsel of any company is a great job and one that you shouldn't want before you're absolutely ready for it. And by the time I became general counsel of McKesson, I had already been at the company six years. I had been a partner in a firm and moved out to San Francisco to take the top job and had a great time and the privilege of handling so many different types of legal issues on any given day or in any given year. It's thrilling. It's also a burden. And it also requires you in a heavily regulated industry to get very close to the business. I would say after 14 years, I was not ready to leave McKesson. But the same thing happened that happened to me when I was in a law firm that happens to attorneys during the course of their career. You get called by other companies. And I went through the same exercise, Randy, of deciding, well, if I am not interested in that job or that job that's calling, is there a company or an industry that is even more complicated than healthcare that I might want to work for in a city that I'd like to be in. And the reason why I would ask those kinds of questions is because I love to practice law. Many of those listening to this podcast like to practice law as well. And I like to grow and I like to learn more. And financial services at American Express, which is both a bank and a credit card network in New York City, with the brand that it has, so B2C, all new challenges for me, Randy. And it was really hard for me not to come to American Express for the sheer growth experience. Well, of course, personally, I was so happy to welcome you to New York when you decided to come here. And also, I think when we first sat down, I asked, you know, what you were thinking to go from the frying pan to the fire in terms of regulation. But I think it's just of a piece with your competitive nature. You have a whole new series of competitors in the government to outcompete at this point, which really makes a lot of sense. Give us a really a thumbnail of your department at American Express before we take a break. All right. So currently, there are 300 individuals in the general counsel organization, which is comprised today of attorneys and lobbyists, as well as uh, individuals supporting the corporate secretarial function. Up until about Two months ago, my organization also included 900 professionals in our compliance organization. And as many large banks have done, we merged our compliance organization with our risk organization, and that's going quite well. Of the 300 now remaining in the law and government affairs organization, I'd say half are lawyers, half are non-lawyers, 
and they're spread across the globe with the highest concentration of people in New York and London. And then we have resources in nine to 10 other countries, including India, uh, Canada, Japan, Argentina, Mexico. So very, very widespread and very diverse. So Lorene, you've been in, in-house in two industries that are incredibly regulated. And the other sort of common thread is that they are both heavily dependent on personal information, personally identifiable information that any company would be, but companies in these regulated industries are particularly concerned about safeguarding and protecting. So I was interesting that you started off at McKesson, of course, in the high tech end, in the software end, and now I think all general counsel, but again, particularly those in the financial services industry are spending a significant amount of time dealing with cybersecurity issues. I'd love to spend just a few minutes speaking with you about that because I've heard you give discussions of your cyber efforts and American Express's cyber efforts, and I think that they're particularly well articulated. Can you tell me, as a big company with a lot of regulatory scrutiny, how do you think about investment in cybersecurity? And do you think that that's necessarily applicable to smaller companies that may have important information but simply don't have the same allocation of resources or regulatory risk associated with them? Yes. So for American Express, yeah, it is absolutely essential that our customers trust our brand and that their information will be protected. So we take privacy and data security concerns very, very seriously. We are far from complacent and we haven't been for many years. So as you acknowledged, we devote significant resources to cybersecurity risks and we have our chief information security officer oversee that globally for the company. We work often with government agencies. We have uh, individuals on staff with top secret clearance to understand trends that are happening. But it goes without saying that the financial information, the social security numbers, and the credit card numbers that we possess for our client base is an asset that a lot of criminals would love to have access to. So it is essential to our business to invest and maintain a secure infrastructure, and we do that. In thinking about your question about whether companies that aren't as large as ours should also be concerned, or companies that, unlike American Express or McKesson that had healthcare information about individuals, whether it matters as much, I would say this. I think that today, as the larger companies with the bulk of sensitive information have shored up their cybersecurity protections with greater firewalls and better internal tracking and anti-phishing campaigns and everything you could possibly imagine. The criminals and those who want access to personal information are looking at all the other companies that we do business with as a weak link in the chain. And so what's happening out there is that the larger companies who do business with many, many other companies as partners are beginning to demand that their partners shore up their cybersecurity, make guarantees to them about their protections, 
and also in many cases go through audits. I've seen the entire banking industry try to identify the types of requirements and standards that we want all the companies that we do business with to meet. And in fact, our bank regulators expect that to be the case. That will happen in healthcare too if it hasn't happened already. So I think it's essential for many businesses that partner with businesses like ours or healthcare businesses to make the investment so that they're not disqualified as a third party doing business. I also think that cyber breaches can be much more expensive than simple measures that can be taken by a third party to periodically assess their environment, put the right protections in place, do some phishing internally to see which employees need training. None of that costs a tremendous amount of money, but can deliver a lot of value. Even just encrypting private information. So every company has something that is of value that they don't want their number one competitor globally or just down the street to possess. It could be a customer list. It can be new product information. And even if it's not personally sensitive information, encryption is pretty key, both so people internally can get access to the information and that people external can't get access to the information. Now, it is a burden for employees who work at companies, big or small, when things are encrypted or multiple steps have to be taken to get to sensitive information. But I would say that that's becoming more and more the way that businesses are operating today and that weaker links will have uh, bigger problems, Randy. So I think it's pretty essential and a lot less expensive to invest up front than deal with the breaches afterwards. And if consumers or customers don't trust your brand or that you are safe to do business with, it could be very damaging to a company, big or small. And I think you do raise an important point about how cyber hygiene, which can be very inexpensive, is extremely worthwhile for companies large and small to take account of. Many of the items you noted, and other things like least access regimes and strong passwords and all that kind of stuff, they do have a bit of a personnel aspect to them as you insist that they're being followed. But it's not like buying some huge piece of equipment or some capital-intensive approach to security, which I think would be helpful for all sorts of companies. You know, one of the things you said was that the financial services industry, in light of its regulatory expectations, has been in some ways banding together to meet the challenges. Does the industry publish the steps it's taken or the best practices so that the work that you have done could be more freely available to other industries and or smaller companies that couldn't invest the kind of resources you had to figure out the steps and the approaches? You know, that's a really good question as to whether or not we publish some of the steps we've taken. I know that I think the FTC has published some very good recommendations that any company could follow to put in a bare bones or mid-level cybersecurity program. I know our executives speak regularly. I know our CIO, Mark Gordon, has been in Washington regularly speaking about what we are and we aren't doing, and we all participate and you've seen me do this as well in forums. 
we share any structural information that people might want to know to help other companies. My staff does the same thing. I think that we do participate in industry forums. So I would say that I'm not aware of any particular standard that we've published, but we we are willing to share what we've learned with others. And I've seen evidence that many other companies are as well. So we don't have to learn by our own mistakes. We can learn from others and what we've done. Yeah, it's a critical aspect. How are you relating cyber issues to your law firms? Have you made demands on your firms about their cybersecurity requirements? Yes, we have. And we're still going through that process. And we actually will audit our law firms. We'll actually do a site visit, Randy, and we'll have testing done on some of their systems. And that's not unusual for large banks because we'll need to make sure that any third party, including law firms, will go through a third party quality assessments in order to be a third party to a bank. And our regulators expect that to happen. And so we actually go on site periodically and have encryption between them and us. So it does present a challenge to smaller law firms. I have to admit that. But we've taken our biggest law firm partners through it and will eventually get to all of our others as well. So it's going to be an investment on their part. Do you think that there could be any negative fallout for what I'm sure are considerable efforts at American Express to increase the diversity of your outside firms? You know, I hope not. I hope not, Randy. And I think that as we were talking earlier, there are inexpensive things that firms can do. Like you said, they have personnel issues, uh, having more complicated passwords, changing them more regularly. And so, you know, I think that right now I have not heard of a single firm that we've had to stop doing business with because they haven't been able to adjust to the work that was needed. And uh, regulators will give us time for all of our third parties to become compliant. So I hope that it doesn't disqualify or result in us not having the ability to use as many different types of law firms as we would otherwise use. Has American Express entered the cyber insurance market in the sense of being a customer? We are a customer, yes. And is that something that you took personal time or had senior level people take time to ensure that it was the kind of, that it was actually going to be a helpful policy? I assume you wouldn't have purchased it if it wasn't going to be helpful, but did you find it more of a risk spreading effort or were you looking for assistance in the sense of underwriting standards that may have increased your readiness and your and your capabilities? Yeah, it was an interesting process to go through. So I'll say this on the underwriting point, that whether or not a company that you or anyone works for ultimately procures cyber insurance, the questions that are asked during the underwriting process are a good roadmap for you to follow in putting an adequate program in place. If you don't pass underwriting, you know you don't have the quality of cyber program that you probably ought to have in place. So the process of applying and going through underwriting can be quite valuable. We had a team here that worked on obtaining our coverage. And I will say that there are many different providers of cyber insurance today and many different kinds of policies. And you have to be very careful as you go through that process and understanding the exceptions or exclusions to coverage and the standards that apply, the timing of notification that's required. And these policies are 
becoming more expensive as more and more data breaches occur and more complicated. So I would say that it's a good thing. The fact that you're asking questions aligns with my view that the jury's out as to whether in the long term the cost of the policies that you get is worth the coverage. We have some historical experience with this, so I could say that the answer to that question was yes in the past, but I think this is an area that we'll just keep observing and others need to watch. These breaches have become very expensive and the carriers will be charging more for the policies going forward. Let's turn finally to the board. You know, your role as the GC, one of the prime roles in interacting with the board of directors, how does American Express report to the board on cyber issues? What kind of reporting have you created to ensure that they are becoming as expert as they need to be about this risk with so many other risks that a board of a financial services company has to worry about? How does this fit in and and how do you ensure that the board, your board members, are able to meet their fiduciary duty by having enough information to be a useful guide, non-operational guide, to management? That also is a great question. I would start by saying that we take our reputation very seriously and we invest in it. And one of the roles that a board has, one of the many roles they have, is to protect the reputation of the company. And they're often expected to oversee and be aware generally of controls associated with things that can present material risks and could either damage the company financially or its reputation. And so given the nature of our business, and in many, many companies' businesses, security of personal information and of our systems and ability to operate is critical to maintaining our good reputation. And a serious breach could be very harmful on that front. So we make sure, and our board welcomes this, that we have regular updates to the board. They can be at least one a year, often more than that, on the cybersecurity environment, not just the companies, but what's happening around the globe and what are the latest trends. And we do this in front of various committees of the board as well as in front of the full board and also take them through the state of the company with respect to those risks, how we manage them, how we assess risk, identify control gaps. As you know, Randy, the schemes that the cyber criminals use change every quarter, every month. And so whatever you've told the board, we function with this assumption, whatever we're doing today will not be enough next year. And whatever controls that we've informed the board we've had historically will need to be updated and they need to be aware of it. We have disclosures in our public filings on our cyber readiness and the board is interested. And many of our directors are CEOs or have been CEOs of other companies and have dealt with these threats. And several of them sit on other corporate boards. And so what they would collectively see is that cyber crime is a bigger and bigger issue for corporate America today than it was several years ago, and it isn't subsiding in the weight of the risk. So they stay informed and involved. 
Laureen, thank you for spending time with me today on In-House Legal. It was a fascinating and hugely informative half hour. I recommend to everyone in the audience to follow Laureen's footsteps in dealing with uh, cyber issues because she's, she's at the forefront. Thank you, Randy, for having me on the podcast. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Again, thank you and have a good rest of your day, Laureen. You too. And I want to thank all of you who have listened to our podcast today. For more information about what you've heard, please visit www.legaltalknetwork.com, or you can also follow us on iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. That brings us to the end of our show. I'm Randy Milch. Thank you for listening. Join us next time for another great episode of In-House Legal. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.